I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Hello, Husky fans, and welcome to another episode of the UConn Pod. This is Amon Kidwai. I'm here with Daniel Connolly and Dan Madigan, as always. Uh, Thanks to both of you guys for joining um unfortunately we have to start this podcast with another very unfortunate piece of news the yukon husky family has lost another one of its own as clifford robinson uh passed away at the age of 53 he was a part of the 1988 nit team that is largely considered to be yukon's breakthrough on the national scene He had a long uh, NBA career after many wrote off the possibility of his pro career. Um, And he did some interesting things after his playing days ended as well. Uh, We saw an outpouring of messages uh, from former UConn teammates, people who played against him in the NBA, coaches in the Big East. Once again, another tough time uh, for the UConn family, and uh, our thoughts, again, are with uh, Clifford Robinson's family uh, at this tough time. Uh, Again, a a, a UConn great, member of the Huskies of Honor, um, and someone who who definitely adds a lot of character to the story uh, of this program. Yeah, I was going to say that Cliff Robinson was a little before my time, but based on the length of his basketball career that's just not really possible for anyone to say unless you were born in like 2015 he had an incredible NBA career he had a great career in college I know um, TCF posted a bunch of his highlights the day that he passed away and he would have fit in right in today's NBA he you know had some length had some size he was drilling threes running up and down the court a lot of hustle uh, obviously a heck of a player and he was the tallest player in the NBA with more than a thousand three pointers for many, many years until Dirk Nowitzki came along. So pretty cool that he ushered in kind of a newer era, a newer way of people playing basketball, um, especially in the NBA where everyone is, you know, very three point centric now. So uh, definitely sad for him to pass uh, one of the UConn greats for sure. And who knows? I mean, that, that 1988 team was kind of the linchpin kind of got the ball rolling for, so many other great success stories that the 1990 dream season, Tate George's shot is part of that season. Um, it, it's just incredibly sad for another UConn great to pass away so soon. But um, on, if there was one thing that came out of this, that was, that was good to see it kind of shined a light on how interesting Robinson's career and his life was. So there's a, a popular tweet going around with uh, the collapsed version of his Wikipedia page. So I'll just rip through it really quick. And it was NBA career statistics. He was in the NBA for, I believe it was 18 or 19 years. Um, And it was an all-star once and six man of the year once. Um, He appeared on Survivor in 2013. Pretty good. I think he came in 14th place. Yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah, 
he wasn't the strongest survivor player from from what I gauge from my uh from my survivor fans out there, but you know, still very impressive and he's still beloved by that survivor community. Uh went to North Korea, played in front of Kim Jong-un as part of Dennis Rodman's uh, team, which um, based on his, uh, his last venture in his life, uh, cannabis, where, which was known as Uncle Spliffy, maybe the, the greatest marijuana-based name ever, um, doesn't ne- necessarily seem too shocking that he was involved with Dennis Rodman in that sense. But, uh, you know, what an interesting career, a very successful career, universally beloved i saw adam schefter was retweeting that cliff robinson passed away so it just shows you know how how much he was known and beloved outside of just this yukon community nba fans across the country loved cliff robinson his game and who he was as a person right we mentioned that 1988 team as kind of the breakthrough one for yukon but if you kind of zoom in a little more and look at it even closer it was cliff robinson was the first really good player that Jim Calhoun had to work with. And Cliff came in the year before Calhoun was hired, but he really didn't explode as a player until Calhoun arrived his sophomore year. So I think as important as that 1988 team was to UConn history and taking that step to national prominence, Cliff Robinson was kind of the engine behind that and was the individual player who without him, the program probably looks a lot different than it does now today. Yeah, and I think uh, I'm, I'm the oldest one here, and he's, he's even before my time. Uh, and yeah, I mean, I, I really, growing up as a kid, I knew him as an NBA player. And then I became a UConn fan later, and I was like, oh, cool, Clifford Robinson. That, I, I know that name. Uh, so um, yeah, such a wide-spanning career and, and impact. Sad to see, and rest in peace, Clifford Robinson. We'll take a quick break and come back to talk about today's UConn men's basketball team. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So it's been about a month since we've last hopped onto the pod waves, but since then, uh, Dan Hurley and the Yukon Huskies have been hard at work, particularly on the recruiting trail. They added two four-star players to the class uh, to the recruiting class of 2021. Um, UConn's class by, depending on your source, is uh, ranked among the top five in the country. And uh, I mean, I'm pretty sure we are definitely at our high point for optimism uh, around the state of this program. But um, I mean, we talked about the Diggins commitment. And of course, that was that was great. He's a, he's a point guard who really fits into the UConn mold and uh, someone who drew comparisons to guys that we know and love. Um, but then UConn added two, two players, you know, like uh, Samson Johnson. Let's get, let's get his measurables up real quick. He's like six foot 10. 
he can shoot. He's got some, he's got some ability down low. Um, that's uh, the kind of player that UConn had a lot of trouble getting in the past. So uh, tall guy who can shoot, love that. Uh, and then Hawkins is a, a wing with great size from the DMV area. Um, and something that is a consistent theme that pops up, but just you can't not love the way these teams are, are constructed right now. But um, at, at any rate, nothing but, but overwhelming optimism for, for UConn men's basketball. The 2021 class is now full. And so Hurley and staff can turn to 2022, but uh, just for starters, we've, we've got our 20, 2021 class set. Diggins, Hawkins, Johnson, all top 100 players. What do you guys think? I really like the addition of Johnson. It seems like he's kind of in the mold of in a cook a cook in that he's long, lanky, a little on the skinny side coming in, uh, but can hit that outside shot as well. So, um, I don't think there is ever a problem taking a flyer or it's not really a flyer when it's a four-star recruit, but bringing in guys that are, you know, that long, that athletic, even if they are a little undersized. Um, I think that's the way that basketball has kind of been trending towards, especially at the college level anyways. And it's good to see that between Sonogo, Hawkins, Book Knight, Samson Johnson, uh, UConn's definitely trending more like longer, maybe a little smaller, more athletic as opposed to trying to get the traditional stocky, slower, you know, power forwards and centers. So uh, it's good to see Hurley kind of move in that direction. And I think that makes more entertaining basketball. And it also kind of caters to how these top 100 players play their games now. So that should help recruit. Um, as for Hawkins, you know, I think it's another dynamic guard to put alongside Diggins. Um, it'll be, it's good to see that he is staying put uh, based on the latest news we've had on the coaching front, but I'm excited to see this class come in. There may be another spot opening up for a variety of reasons. Who knows with the way this season shakes out, uh, whether it's book night going pro stuff popping up due to COVID there may be other spots, but even if nothing changes, this is a really, really good class. And the first recruiting class that is truly worth getting really excited about since, you know, maybe the top five class that Ollie brought in, five or six years back. Um, but there's some real optimism here. Th these are some legit players. And that was four years ago, 2016. They just graduated college. No need to date them. Time doesn't but, matter. <laughs> but I just think it's awesome that Dan Hurley's first year in the Big East, he goes out and he gets the three top players that he wants. And he gets them over other Big East schools. Like, it's not like his recruiting was going poorly in the American, obviously, with Book Knight and a cook and all those guys. But just, I hopefully, this is a sign of things to come and not just a one off thing. Because if it's basically going to be UConn's going to get the first shot at pretty much any guys they want, just that alone means the Dan Hurley era is going to go really, really well on top of the player development and the culture and everything else that he's brought in. So I think aside from just being really excited about the players themselves, because they are all really good players, it just says a lot about what Dan Hurley is probably going to be doing here at UConn for the next couple of decades. Yeah. And, and Dan, like you said, Johnson was another New Jersey recruit. So uh, it's good to beat him out over Villanova, 
uh, any of the New York schools, St. John's. Um, so it's always good to see that. But yeah, I, I think it's, like you said, there's a little bit of actual on-court success that we saw this past season. Uh, and, you know, assuming this season is going to be normal, I think it's fair to say that UConn is projected to continue to build off of that and continue to have a another strong season in the first year in the Big East under, under Hurley. So it's cool to see these recruits kind of buying into to what Hurley is doing here and, you know, trying to bring the program back to what it used to be. Uh, and I was thinking, cause I was, you know, I compared Johnson to a cook and we just finished kind of wrapping up about the passing of, of Cliff Robinson. But I kind of wonder if that a cook uh, commitment was it a year and a half ago, two years ago now. Um, I wonder if that's going to kind of be like that moment where, you know, Cliff and that 88 team won the NIT and it's different circumstances. So many things have changed in the world, but it does seem like since a cook committed, uh, you know, the caliber recruit that UConn is getting is going up. The level of success that UConn has had on the court is going up and things are starting to kind of trend in that right direction. So I wonder if, you know, we do this podcast 20 years from now and we look back on it and we're saying like, wow, like, when Hurley got a cook, that was what kind of started the reascension back to where UConn needs to be. So this class is definitely one of the first steps to getting back there. Yeah, Cook was definitely huge, and I agree that the the schools that they beat out are beating out for these guys is so important. If you go back to 2014, UConn coming off of a championship, 2014, 2015, still losing out on recruits to Georgetown, Villanova, Seton Hall, Providence. Um, that's not happening anymore. Uh, like we said, Diggins, right out of, right out of Philly. Uh, New Jersey, Madigan, you mentioned everyone, but Seton Hall, the school in New Jersey that, uh, you know, was, seemed to be a, on top for, for him. And then Hawkins, right out of DeMatha Catholic, a, a D.C. area powerhouse high school. So we're talking about right out of Georgetown's backyard, grabbing these, you know, like top 50 ish recruits all of them a cook is is uh definitely the the first breakthrough but i think clearly again hugest part is the big east move paying off in droves we cannot overstate enough um we've fixed the thing that was wrong with basketball recruiting at least and um the the payoff is coming and god just Hope we can have a basketball season this year so that we can um, see the last of Book Night, who, who will be gone no matter what. Um, but uh, yeah, the, the level of excitement I'm feeling for UConn men's basketball is really a, a, an unprecedented feeling that I thought had escaped my, my possibilities, but um, just really exciting to see in terms of being able to win on these types of players who are fun and talented and all that. Right. And I mean, we were really excited about the big East move just because it was the big East with all the schools that we used to play in the successful schools that they brought in. But I think when the move was announced, everyone kind of acknowledged like, yeah, this isn't the old big East. There's no Syracuse. There's no pit. Those schools are gone, but the big East since it, the split happened has always kind of been around like, the more bottom end of the top five conferences for college basketball, men's college basketball in the country. But 
with this year's recruiting class in particular, I think every single school except Providence is in the top 35 for recruiting rankings, right? So maybe it's not the old Big East, but it doesn't necessarily need to be the old Big East to still be one of the best basketball conferences in the country. And I think UConn has a lot to do with that because the Big East, if you only had like Creighton and Butler and all the other top teams from the A-10 and the Missouri Valley Conference or whatever, like, yeah, sure, you can call it the Big East, but that's not actually going to make it the Big East. But this Big East has the credibility because it had the Georgetown, St. John's, Providence, all those original Big East schools. And I don't think it's really being biased as someone who writes about UConn and goes to UConn that UConn is still the biggest name in the conference just with all the success they've had and the national brand that they have. So I think UConn coming back to the Big East and adding to that credibility of the new Big East and making it feel a lot more like the old Big East, I think that's just going to help elevate the conference even more than it already is. Yeah, and on top of everything you just said, Aman and Dan, and this can't be overstated enough, is that UConn, an athletic department that is woefully, like, they have no money, is going to start making eventually, if they ever, this world ever gets back to some sort of normalcy, going to start making a lot more money than they ever had. So it, it just goes to show once again, it's a win, 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 every area things are looking up, but no, Dan, you're right too. I mean, outside of Villanova, it's, it's a big exception because, you know, they have two national titles in the last decade, but uh, UConn is the only school that's been relevant from a, a postseason success perspective since the millennium. So um, it, it's, you know, it's not crazy to say that. And I think having those traditional Big East schools still adds that kind of allure. It draws the networks in, casual fans in, uh, and it gives the conference some, some credibility, even with uh, the new additions. Yeah, they could use more contenders. And, and that's where, where UConn comes in in a big way. Maybe, maybe Seton Hall or Georgetown, if everyone didn't leave last year, but you know, maybe, maybe someone becomes, fills that role, but kind of like uh, you guys were saying, UConn's able to just step into that role immediately. And um, if they can have postseason success, then it's just one more team that's doing it uh, on top of one. So uh, it's, it is happening very clearly at the expense of Providence. Ed Cooley is not mad. Don't, do not anybody it's, say He's that. fine with it. He's Ed fine. Is mad. Um, you know, I, I love that we were able to collect quotes from Kevin Willard at Seton Hall being not pleased about it. Uh, the quote from a journalist saying that Patrick Ewing uh, said he was, happy for, he was happy that UConn is joining, but his face said that he tasted uh, a bad oyster or something like that. So, like, I, I, I love deep down how it's making – some of the coaches really upset because uh, that's what rivalry is, is built upon. So uh, that's going to be a lot of fun. And uh, we cannot state enough how important it is. Providence has zero recruits for the class of 2021. We wish them all the best in their future endeavors. So we did mention that uh, specifically with recruiting and uh, Hawkins in particular from the DMV area. Um, UConn's top recruiter for that region did just leave the staff. Kenya Hunter accepted a job with Indiana. 
great for him. Uh, UConn was able to fill that spot with a familiar name in Kevin Freeman, former UConn player, member of the 1999 National Championship team, and a former member of the men's basketball staff. Um, You know, the coaching, uh, assistant coaches come and go. Not to not to just dismiss this, but um, seemed like Hunter was making a really big impact for UConn, uh, both on recruiting and in terms of working with the players, relating with the players. Hey, we had big men that were developing, players that were getting better year over year. We have to attribute some of that to you know one of the three assistant coaches. So, um, and and obviously he must have been doing some really good things to grab the attention of uh, of Indiana, but. Uh, I think UConn was able to find a good good replacement there. Um, hopefully the Huskies can keep it going. I think it's positive that we know Hawkins is staying. He's not going to follow the coach who recruited him to Indiana. But, yeah, the return of Kevin Freeman. How do we feel, folks? When his name kind of got brought up after Hunter left, I thought it was kind of underwhelming just because I – hadn't really followed much about Kevin Freeman since he left the staff to become an assistant coach at Penn state. So it, to me, it seemed like he was simply on the short list because he was an assistant coach out at a power five school that went to UConn. And then obviously when they announced him as head coach or it got reported that he was head coach, I still kind of felt underwhelmed, but from what all the national people that cover the sport were saying, and from what some people at Penn state seemed to say, he does actually, seemed to have some legitimate credentials and was given a lot of credit by the head coach there at Penn state for being a good recruiter and helping with the big. So I think what makes me feel a little better about it is that Dan Hurley's making the decision. And obviously Dan Hurley's not a UConn guy like Kevin Ollie was, or even Jim Calhoun at the end of his career where he's got loyalties to these guys, or he's got loyalties to certain people just because they're from UConn if Hurley thinks he's the right hire, then I feel pretty good that it's probably the right hire. And the fact that he went to UConn is probably more of just one of those, like on the application, like skills not required, but preferred, like it definitely helps in the recruiting and just having a knowledge of the school and all that. So I have no strong feelings. Like I hope he's a good assistant coach, obviously, but I have faith in Dan Hurley that it's the right hire. Yeah, I think I, I kind of feel how you feel, Dan. It's a still still a quality hire, and you know UConn's still going to be able to compete for the same caliber of recruits that Kenya Hunter was was bringing in. I don't think it's going to be a drastic change like that. Uh, and if anything, you know, Coach Freeman has a lot of connections to UConn, so maybe he feels a little more invested to kind of helping get the program back to where it was when he won that title in '99. And even though it was under the uh, the Ali Calhoun regime, he was still really well respected. So it's not like, um, you know, it's not like he did anything to change that reputation at Penn State. So um, it'll it'll be interesting to see how it shakes out. But it is cool to see another UConn guy on the staff, uh, along with like Talik Brown um, and and Tom Moore, who was a coach under Calhoun for for many years. So it's good to see and. Um, in the midst of all this coach shifting, Kamani Young got bumped up to associate head coach as well. So I think that's that's cool to see too. Uh, that Hurley has you know some some more faith in in Young and um, 
I imagine that probably gives Young a little more incentive to stick around and kind of gives a little bit more stability. So uh, it isn't a huge deal that Hunter left, like you said, Amon, good for him, uh, continuing to try and, you know, push himself and, and take on new challenges. Uh, he's obviously a hell of a recruiter, but um, I think we'll, UConn's in good hands with, with Coach Freeman. Yeah, I mean, the, the, regardless of who the assistant coach is, the, the offer is still to play at UConn in the Big East, and that's a right. really good offer. Um, and that's probably why some of these guys chose UConn, uh, obviously. And so um, in, in a lot of ways, recruits also pick the school just as much as the coaches. I, not, not to, um, again, dismiss the importance of the recruiter. Of course, we care deeply about that. Um, but you're still, you're still making a very good offer, and surely Kevin Freeman can handle it. Um, yeah, the fact that he's not like a buddy of Dan Hurley's, I think, is what helps anyone who might feel like he's getting a preferential treatment in this, maybe probably, you know, dismiss that thought. And that's, that's good. Um, if you didn't follow Penn State basketball very closely, um, you are excused. They are basically a, an, an irrelevant basketball program on the scene. However, they have made improvements as of late. They won 21 games last year. They won 26 games two years ago. Uh, I watched them beat Georgetown uh, in Washington, D.C. in a basketball game uh, in this past season, I believe. Um, and so the Penn State, Penn State has actually a pretty good thing going in hoops, and, and Kevin Freeman was a part of that. And so... Uh, yeah, you know, he left UConn and he built up his credentials. He learned and, and all that. And um, I'm sure he'll be able to bring a lot and have learned from his travels. But yeah, the, 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 don't sleep on the experience at Penn State just because you don't know much about the team. They, they really did do pretty well there. Yeah, I got to say, this is all the, uh, the New York Knicks fault, though. I, as, as much as it's nice to have Freeman in and, and Hunter, uh, you know, going on to Indiana, for, you know, realistically, probably a slightly better gig, all, all things considered. Uh, it would have been nice to have stability through this pandemic. But the Knicks hired Kentucky's assistant coach, Kenny Payne. Calipari hired his buddy, Bruiser Flint, who is Indiana's assistant coach. And that led to Indiana hiring Kenya Hunter away from UConn. So um, if anyone hates the Knicks, which I'm sure most people do, um, just another thing to blame on them, really. So channel that anger towards towards Jim Dolan. I'm a Knicks fan, and I also hate the Knicks. So. Yeah, that goes hand in hand. Yeah. Uh, right, and also just yeah. in general, like if UConn's going to be a good program with a youngish head coach in Dan Hurley, then there's a good chance that assistants are probably going to be closer to a revolving door than a long-term staff because I – Kamani Young tweeted that when the news became official that he was associate head coach, he, I think, pretty explicitly said that he wants to be a head coach one day. And if things keep going well, that won't be at UConn. So he's going to leave. And I imagine a big part of Kenya Hunter leaving was that he wants to be a head coach of his, his own program one day. And maybe he just felt like going to Indiana was a better pathway to that opportunity. So I think as long as Dan Hurley's still there and I 
have to imagine Tom Moore is probably going to be here for a while too. I don't see him getting another head coaching job. Then you still have a lot of stability. And as long as Hurley's good with his hires, which from just his recent history, I think what this is like his fourth or he has like three former assistants coaching head coaching gigs. His brother Bobby is at Arizona state. I think one of his assistants assistants at Wagner's, Right. And then David Cox at Rhode Island. So I think he's got a pretty good track record of picking assistants. So as long if assistants are leaving to take head coaching jobs or to move up in the coaching world consistently, then I think that means not only is Dan Harley developing players well, but he's probably developing coaches well too, which I think is a good sign for the program. Yeah. I think Hurley, uh, I think Hurley said too, when Kamani got promoted, you know, going to make, going to make a great head coach in a few years or, or someday or something like that. So it, it's also cool. I mean, I imagine some coaches are not that thrilled when these younger up and coming assistant coaches are moving on. And it's, it's just cool to see Hurley at least publicly encouraging that and, and letting these people make the most out of their basketball careers. Yeah. And I think the other thing, um, not that this has been an issue with previous UConn men's basketball coaches, but it, it does come up, but we feel really confident about our stability and holding on to Dan Hurley. And that's really where the confidence and the lack of concern about losing assistance really comes from. Dan Hurley, you know, probably since he was a very young person, has had UConn basketball and, and the Big East and where it stands on his radar. He understands how big of a job this is. Um, how great it can be, what it offers, the fact that, you know, UConn is basically the pro team for an entire state. Um, I think what, you know, what would drive my feelings of confidence most if I really am thinking about it is just Hurley's, he's probably not going to take another college head coaching job. Um, If the NBA came calling, I'm, you know, maybe he'd consider it, but I don't know if they would. And at this point for him, you know, like, again, what more do you want? He, I think he is fully aware that this, this can be a career pinnacle job. Um, And so uh, we've got Hurley for the long haul. And so uh, that is pretty sweet. Right. I remember before he officially took the job at UConn, like the reports were that he was completely agonizing over leaving you are freaking I like Mm -hmm. that's a dumpster fire program. And it was a dumpster fire program before he showed up and the facilities were that I actually think they have decent facilities, but the a 10 is forever a mid-major conference. And he pretty much maxed out what he could do at URI by making the tournament consistently that he was never going to build a national championship contender there. So I think the fact that, it took him that much time and that much energy and thought to leave URI. I would just totally, totally, totally be stunned if he ever left UConn, especially for another college program, but even just in general. Speaking of having very good coaches for a very long time, uh, UConn field hockey is uh, waving a very sad farewell to Nancy Stevens, the absolute legend, the field hockey 
college field hockey god, Nancy Stevens, 42 years at UConn. Uh, she's retiring from her post as the head coach of the multiple-time national championship UConn Husky field hockey team. Um, Nancy Stevens, uh, also a very nice person. Um, and I believe we were talking about this before, but they did name a replacement for her, right? Yep. So, yeah, it's going to be the longtime assistant, Paul Caddy who's going to fill in for her. Uh, that was effective as of September 1st. So this past week it, it officially switched over. But, yeah, uh, I was a little surprised by the news um, just because, you know, she's always been there. She's been the head coach of the field hockey team for as long as, you know, my whole lifetime. Um, and, you know, she kind of helped them, helped bring them back to national prominence. They won a national title in the early 80s. Uh, and then, you know, sh they were consistently competing for titles for years under Nancy Stevens before they finally broke through in 2013. Then they won again in 2014 and then once more in 2017. So she won three national titles, uh, 700 wins. She's the winningest coach in NCAA field hockey history. Um, and she won 38 Big East championships. Uh, it's an incredible resume, like j just like an unbelievable resume. and. Like you said, Amon, she was an incredibly nice person. Uh, during my time at the Daily Campus, she she always made time to talk with uh, some of our younger writers, our older writers. She made time for everyone, um, and you know was super humble, super nice. Uh, even though she was, for most of the time that I was there, anyways, from 2013 to 2017, the most successful coach on campus outside of maybe Gino Oriema. But um, you know, just an incredible resume, and you know, it's sad to see her go. I understand, you know, the, the timing with this season kind of off the books due to COVID uh, and, and who knows how things will resume in the coming years. So uh, it's, it's a sad day, but uh, it's just crazy to think about even in, in 2013 or, uh, you know, those early 2000s, we had Jim Calhoun, Gino Oriama, Nancy Stevens, Jim Penders, Ray Reed, Len Santiris, uh, just an incredibly Randy like Edsel. Randy Etzel, of course. Skip um, just just an just a crazy list of coaches. Three coaches between Calhoun, Stevens, and Oriama have seven hundred at least seven hundred wins. Um, there's no way that any other school has ever had that at one time. Someone fact check me, but I know I'm right. Um, like it, it's just unbelievable to to see that that much success at one school at one time in so many different sports. Yeah. Um, and it's a credit to the athletic department and all these coaches for sticking together at a school in Connecticut, which, you know, I'll go out on a limb and say didn't have the best field hockey facilities to my knowledge, at least until, you know, the last few years. Um, and to commit to that and, and, you know, build a real dynasty in a non-revenue sport. Really cool to see. Right. They really need to name the stadium after her. Yeah. Like it's called like George Sherman family sports complex, I think is the official name, but like you can just add on Nancy Stevens stadium at Sherman sports complex. I mean, she, if anyone has deserved to get a stadium named after them, that won't cause a giant uproar with a uh, fellow coach at the school looking at the basketball programs. <laughs> it's Nancy Stevens. 
So I like put her name as big as you can on that stadium, put her name on the field, put her name everywhere, name the track after her just because it's, it, she stood on it a lot, but I actually have two kind of funny Nancy Stevens stories. One's better than the other. So I'll start with the less bad one. So my freshman year at UConn long time ago, I was coming back from intramurals and if you went to UConn or if you know UConn intramurals, a lot of times are played on the field hockey field and that's where the track is. So there's that road that runs kind of between the field house and the field hockey field. So I was walking back to my dorm at towers one day and I'm walking along the field house and I just kind of look up and notice that like Nancy Stevens office is right there. Like I can look in and see the national championship trophies lined up on her desk. So I kind of stop and like take a photo. And then all of a sudden, like I see Nancy Stevens kind of like turn in her chair. I was like, Oh crap, Nancy Stevens is in there. And I think I like booked it down to the end of the field house. But uh, my second Nancy Stevens story is I knew someone on the field hockey team. And after they won the national championship in 2017, I was talking with them and apparently before one of the games, Nancy Stevens has like a cat or maybe a bunch of cats. I'm not totally sure on the details of that one, but she's like trained her cats to be like, basically like dogs, like they attack on command. So she had some stuffed animal. They might've been a Husky and she like put the stuffed animal in front of the cat and she was videoing it. And she told the cat to attack the Husky. And apparently the cat just like ripped the thing to shreds and like totally destroyed it. And her message from that was, that's what I want you to do on the field this Saturday. So that was Nancy Stevens. That was a, real lo- that was a locker room speech, having her cat do that in front of the team. I think she made a video of it and then, yes, played it in the locker room before a game. If I have the story straight in my head. Nice. That's good stuff. That's, that's how champions are built. Um, I'm told. Uh, I, I think Madigan, you bring up such a good point. Um, obviously, I, <laughs> to go out on, on a small limb, I don't think any of us grew up as uh, ardent field hockey fans, but uh, I thought it was awesome that UConn had a really good team in field hockey. And like you said, that just UConn as an athletic department has success all over the place, uh, like baseball, soccer, in football a little bit, sometimes, believe it or not, uh, obviously dynastic basketball, but like to just have quality stuff going on around uh, with all sports and to have like a good culture around following them. Like the softball team has a following. Obviously the goal patrol is like uh, a group that has withstood the test of time and shout out. Yeah. No, I mean, look, not a lot of, not a lot of colleges have like a dedicated soccer fan group for their, for their college soccer team. Like, um, it's it's a good it's a good experience as a student. It's good to be a UConn fan. So just remember that. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. And that is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. 
So yeah, sad to see Nancy Stevens go and can't help but think that uh, there's a correlation between fall sports being canceled and Nancy Stevens having to leave. Uh, and we don't get to see uh, the men's and women's soccer teams this year, um, which is a disappointment for, for a few reasons. I'm sure, Connolly, you can give us a few more details as to why that's disappointing in particular. Right. I think the biggest thing that baseball faced in the spring was baseball couldn't open their brand new stadium that Jim Pender so very much deserves because of the pandemic. And now the soccer team isn't going to be able to play in their new stadium because of the pandemic for the first season. And that just really sucks because Moroni was a really good college soccer facility, but it was definitely dated though. I was on campus maybe like a month ago and it's just unbelievable how that part of campus looks now. Like obviously it was always dominated by sports. There were all the fields there, but it's just, I, there's no way that I can describe it properly about how incredible it looks with the performance center and the baseball field tucked in and the soccer stadium just looks amazing. It's three-sided. It just looks like a really great intimate place to watch soccer. So I think that's the most disappointing part on top of the women's soccer team had a really good recruiting class come in and was probably going to be at least competitive in the big East and feel the competitive team for the first time in a couple of years. Men's soccer, uh, they're a crapshoot. If anyone says that they can actually predict how the men's soccer team does, they're lying. Though it should be mentioned, just to get off on a little tangent, that this past week the Intercollegiate did a large story on the Freedom of Information Act, a bunch of college team handbooks, and went through what some of the things were saying. The best part of that info was that UConn soccer has a strict, clear-cut, underlined policy that you cannot pee in the woods. Which, I, if I if a good rule, you met someone, and you could only say one thing to try and describe what UConn men's soccer program is like. That is the exact thing you need to know because it doesn't make sense. It's kind of confusing. It might have some negative connotations, but at the same time, it does make sense. But you're still not really sure about all of it. That just sums up the Ray Reed program perfectly. Uh, yeah, that was uh, quite the finding. I, you know, I said to you guys, I'm, I'm the old man in the chat now, but, uh, you know, there are potential legal ramifications if you uh, are, are peeing and sometimes might be uh, liable to be arrested for indecent exposure. So there's, you know, there's, there's good reasons for that. And, you know, Ray Reed's a thorough guy. We all know that. We all know he manages his team. Uh, he, he expects the best of his team. And I think that includes uh, peeing indoors. So uh, if he feels that way, uh, all the power in the world to him. We also found out some stuff about the UConn football team. Um, we'd actually known some of that stuff before. I think, I think some of that stuff had come out earlier, like the, the pyramid that said meet or team on it. <laughs> um, but yeah, good, good plug for our friends at the intercollegiate uh, Matt Brown, our former friend from SB nation uh, is out there. Uh, he's also, working on a really informative newsletter on college sports called Extra Points. 
Uh, speaking of newsletters, we would regret if we didn't also share that we've got a few of our own that we've launched. So uh, we got the UConn Fast Break, an overview of all things UConn sports. Uh, you can go to the UConn blog to find out more about that. And uh, Connolly, why don't you tell us about the other newsletter and another piece of multimedia journalism that is coming to UConn fans on a semi-regular basis. Right, so we're happy to continue being the leaders in UConn women's basketball coverage. So first we launched the UConn Women's Basketball Weekly, which is a, it's exactly what it sounds like. It's a UConn Women's Basketball newsletter that comes out every week, every Thursday at 7 a.m. It's got a recap of all the news you might have missed, has all the links that we put out throughout the week about the team, has links from other sources, and it'll always have a story in it that tries to take a different look at things. This past week, I basically looked at some former players and also looked at the context of how these freshmen are going to be coming in with the rest of the team around them and tried to make some educated guesses slash predictions on what their production might look like for the first season. So always try and take just a different look at the women's basketball program or look at the history in that. So you can subscribe to that. It's free. And then a couple weeks ago, speaking of the pod waves, we launched what I believe to be the first ever UConn women's basketball specific podcast, Chasing Perfection. It's me and Megan Gower, who if you read the UConn blog, you've definitely read her stuff. It comes out every other week. So every two weeks, the last one just dropped yesterday. Runs 45 minutes to an hour. Nice quick sum up of all the news. We get off on some fun different tangents. This last week, we talked about the really good giant cookies at Mohegan Sun. And also just went way off on a tangent trying to predict which current members of the UConn team are going to be in the WNBA and which ones are going to do the best and those sorts of things. And then hopefully it didn't work out this past episode, but we'll have some interesting guests on about UConn women's basketball, women's basketball as a whole, or just different interesting people around the program. So really excited with the first two episodes, really excited with the response to it. So just all in all, super happy with the stuff that we're putting out for UConn women's basketball on the UConn blog store central and all the other channels. Absolutely. Um, I have said this before, but it does bear repeating. Uh, Megan Gower is the smartest of us uh, by a very large margin. Uh, Maybe combined all of us is her smartness. Very potentially. Um, and you, if you are a fan of UConn women's basketball, um, and I say this objectively, you are actually doing yourself a disservice if you don't read the work of both Megan and young Daniel Connolly. Um, they are the leading uh, uh, writers for UConn Women's Hoops. There's really would be very hard to argue that, along with our incredible visual journalist Ian Bethune uh, on the on the photo and video. Um, yeah, we, we've, we've got a great uh, audience there and um, WNBA season has, has given you guys plenty to talk about. So you can check out those first two episodes of Chasing Perfection on this very same podcast feed. Uh, so do look out for that. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little 
or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. All right, so we've got a quick little segment now. I've got Patrick Martin on, our men's basketball slash men's soccer slash everything else writer at the UConn blog. Celtics game finished, what, like 10, 15 minutes ago? Uh, we're going we're gonna to talk some Kemba Walker, so... Not not what you want if you're a Celtics fan like us. Yeah, you know, it finished 10 minutes ago. It really felt like it finished an hour ago. I've just been sitting here with, with the next game on mute, just staring into the void, scrolling through Twitter. So if uh, you're not a Celtics fan and you're not aware, what happened was with time ticking down, the Celtics had the ball at the end of the game tied, and Kemba Walker – Dribbles to the right, kind of gets doubled, but as Kemba does, makes this phenomenal move, dribbles out of it, kind of drives sideways into the paint, attracts two more defenders, and he puts a perfect pass to Daniel Tice underneath, who dunks it with 0.5 seconds left. So, obviously, Celtics up 2 nothing. You think that's pretty much the series to put him up 3 nothing. With 0.5 seconds left, the Raptors inbound the ball, cross-court, guys wide open on the three-point line, and he somehow gets the shot off puts it in and the Raptors win. So I think just the thing that sucks the most is that Kemba makes this like phenomenal, like very Kemba-esque play to win the game. And then it just has to get ruined by such like a, I don't want to say a freak play, but whatever that was. It was, it was the least likeliest play that could have happened. Um, Taco fall. All seven foot seven of him. Brad Stevens brought him out. I think it's his first minutes since Philly to be to guard the inbounder. And Kyle Lowry throws a cross court pass to the corner. All the other spots were, were guarded, um, and it really ruined Kemba's incredible night because he did everything today. Kemba finished with twenty nine points. In 39 minutes, shot 9 of 15 from the field, 4 of 7 from 3, had 3 assists, none of which was bigger than that one in the end, and then 3 steals on top of that. The only Celtic starter, interestingly enough, with a positive plus-minus, he had plus 11, as did Grant Williams and Robert Williams. Just an awful way to lose a game, but it's probably one of Kemba's best games as a Celtic, no? I... I think so because for for most of the game it was really the Kemba Walker show. He had 17 points in the first quarter. Um, he and it wasn't just the offensive load he was holding. He he took three charges. You know this is a six foot one generous six foot one person taking charges against the likes of Fred VanVleet and Kyle Lowry, two beefy six three six four plus size people. Um, he's putting his body on the line. He was diving after loose balls. Um, and you know, he's getting doubled and, and, and sent through every single screen, um, possible. It's just, he, he, you, you flinch every time you, you see someone like Marcus Saul setting a screen because it's that, it's that hip to hip contact. And you just wonder how, like, how is his, 
how does he handle that? And then on top of that, to pour in 29 points and to lead the team in scoring, uh, Tatum had a decent night, and Jalen Brown was more had more of an impact on the defensive end. So it was really on Kemba to shoulder the offensive load, and they had it. They had it locked up. It was right there. You got to tip your hat to Toronto. They made they made a great play, and you know if if that's what it takes to beat that to beat Kemba at this point, you you have to feel good if you're a Celtics or if you're a UConn fan, because that was the best that the Raptors threw at them. Right, and I remember like when he was at UConn, I always knew that like obviously he was a smaller guard, but the size really didn't stand out to me so much when he was in college because obviously it's smaller players but I turned on the game a couple nights ago and it's just incredible like how much smaller he looks than the average NBA player and yeah I think 6-1 is maybe with shoes on on a scale like that is really pushing it but that also kind of works to his advantage like that play at the end he had he's kind of just like squeezing and sliding in and out between people like that small stature is also what makes him so deadly. Yeah. You know, for, for his size, have you ever seen, I have yet to see somebody stay in front of him. And and I've been watching a lot of Kemba Walker and a lot of Celtics, you know, for the past nine years, I I haven't seen anyone be able to stay in front of him without some sort of double or some sort of hedge. Uh, And it's funny that last play that he had to Tice, I'm screaming at the TV because, um, Similar to, you know, the famous cardiac step back and, and, and what's been going on. It was like a high screen and roll game with Marcus Smart this time instead of like a swingman. And Marcus was wide open. And so in your head, you're thinking, okay, you can, you can just kick it to him and Marcus can do something or it's going to be a step back. It's not going to be Kemba just dribbling around in circles, which is what he did for, you know, 10 seconds. And of course, to find that pass, but you're, 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 you almost – do you remember that video of Jim Calhoun where he's yelling at Ryan Boatwright? Like, <laughs> hit him, hit him, you mother effer. That's what it felt like because he had all these people open or where's the step back coming? And then just to have the vision and the composure to put a perfect pocket pass to Tice for the dunk. Just that, it, that embodies Kimball Walker. Just when have you ever seen him face, so, you know, starting from Rice to UConn to now? Like he has never – choked in a moment like that right he's that that's just like kind of into the cardiac Kemba moniker like he's always so cool and relaxed when he has the ball and I mean just to kind of zoom out and look at his kind of this season as a whole with him his first year as a Celtic as someone who's a big Boston sports fan I was looking for this to happen way before like anyone had it on their radar because obviously Kyrie was just such a bad influence on the Celtics and last year's team underperformed so badly with the talent they had. And it's hard not to point the finger at Kyrie. So I was saying to dump Kyrie and sign Kemba and like pretty much immediately when that happened, there was all this talk about how much he was improving the chemistry and I just love seeing how Boston sports fans with how passionate they are. And obviously when Boston sports fans love someone, they love someone as we've seen with Tom Brady, David Ortiz, Bergeron, Paul Pierce for the Celtics or Isaiah Thomas. And it's just so much fun that whenever Kemba's just doing Kemba things like the play he had at the end of the game tonight, or that step back that he had a couple nights ago, like 
nobody deserves to have that type of outpouring of support and love behind him than Kemba after spending his entire career in Charlotte where they never sniffed anything close to real success. Yeah, I actually for a little bit took some did some quick research and looked at some of the players at the that the Hornets whiffed on, you know, that were within a couple of picks away. Uh, they took Frank Kaminsky when they, they had Devin Booker waiting a couple picks away. They took Malik Monk when Bam Adebayo was a couple picks after. They literally picked Shea Gildress, Gilgris Alexander and then proceeded to trade him for Miles Bridges. Now, Miles Bridges is okay, but, like, those are all pieces that you can put with Kemba and let him do Kemba things, as you said. And then to have him go to a team that has Tatum, Brown, Hayward, this is basically a perfect roster for him where he doesn't have to do too much. He doesn't have to do what he did tonight. Obviously, game two, he was like three for 17 going into the fourth quarter. He's not going to be on all the time, but he doesn't have to shoulder that load every game. And he, who, who deserves that more? You know, you know, proven winner in college, probably one of the most successful college basketball athletes ever. Um, in you know, to have that lack of success in the NBA and finally come to fruition, and then be it in basically in a lot of UConn's UConn fans' backyard, it's it's perfect. It's basically what you know, NBA fans and Boston fans are finally seeing what we loved about him, you know, from 2009 to 2011. Right, exactly, and also from like an off the court perspective it's a perfect role for him because the Celtics obviously have a ton of super young talent, but your, I guess your veteran leader would probably be Marcus Smart, right? And he was still only drafted not super long ago. So it's also just a perfect role for him to come into and be a team leader and kind of grow that part of himself as a player too. So to kind of wrap up here, Kemba in a tournament is extremely tough to bet against. So You've seen a lot more Celtics than me. How far do you think he's going to take them? Okay, I'm going to go on the record here. Uh, yeah, on I, the it's record. About, it's, about time I, it's about time I put my money where my mouth is. I think he's going to take them to the finals. Ooh, just to the finals? Uh, I don't know. See, I, I'm not sure who they play. Um, he's going to take – okay, I, 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 I cannot say yes. I don't want to jinx myself, but I – he will take the Celtics to the finals in six games. I don't know if it will be win or loss, but it will be a six game finals. Mm, interesting. Interesting. I, from my very educated opinion here, think they're going to get to the finals. It's going to be against the Lakers. And then Kemba's going to outduel LeBron James in the series and bring it back to Boston. I hope my so. official prediction on the record. Kemba okay. slaying King James would just would probably be the greatest thing in NBA history. Oh, and there's so many parallels too. When you think Anthony Davis came in in 2012 to UK and UK finally won Calipari's championship, you know, after Kemba Walker leaves, you know, to go pro. And then here comes Kemba now to deny AD his first ring. Oh, it would be, it would be too sweet. It would be too sweet, but no, I'm glad I'll, I'll take your optimism and bottle that up. I'm very, much the kind of reverse jinx person and, and you know I just want to continue to see him get this spotlight that he deserves that's kind of a cop-out answer but yeah I'll, I'll, I'll stick with that right I mean it's not like I I really can't think of a UConn player who's as 
just completely and universally beloved this far after they've been away from UConn as Kemba. Because just what he did in 2011 is still so unbelievable. And even to this day, like no disrespect to what Shabazz and Boat and DeAndre Daniels did in 2014, but he brought basically an all freshman team to the national championship on his back. And I, like you said, it's just awesome that he's finally getting this opportunity in the NBA because of what he's dealt with in Charlotte all those years. And just on top of being such a phenomenal basketball player, like by every account, and from my own personal experiences with him, he's such a phenomenal dude too. So you really just can't root against him. And I even saw on Twitter, someone said like Kemba did really well and the Celtics still lost. So it was the perfect scenario. It's like Kemba transcends people hating on Boston, which and, is and, a pretty tough thing to do. Yeah. Oh yeah. And, and but let's be honest. People hate Boston. They oh, yes. hate, they hate us. I, I hate to use us. But like they hate us. And then to have people be like, well, I really want Kemba to do well. I, I know people who are not UConn fans and who hate Boston sports and be like, I love Kemba. And that, that, that's, yeah. just, that's just the person who he is on, on the court, off the court. Um, you know, and you, we've seen that, and it's just so, it's so gratifying to see the broader you know, scope of fans, casual fans, finally recognize what a great person and an athlete he is. Yeah, for sure. So that'll do it for our Kemba segment. Hopefully we're going to be talking about Kemba uh, in an upcoming podcast because that means the Celtics are still going. If my prediction somehow holds true or if the Celtics just somehow pull off a championship run, I think we may just need a full dedicated Kemba episode. Like, I think there would be no other options there. There's no other option. And it could honestly go for five hours. I'd be perfectly okay with that. You can never stop talking about Kemba. Like it's Ke- really? like, and it just the fact that his name's Kemba. It's so perfect. Oh, I've already told people I'm naming my first dog. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And will it be a husky? I'm not sure about that, but it's definitely going to be named Kemba. Well, you have it here. You know that Kemba's going to lead the Celtics to the finals over LeBron and the Lakers, and you also know that Patrick is now on the record for saying his dog will be named Kemba. There we go. Write it in ink. That's going to do it for us. Thank you all for listening.